1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yarko. Is the raw material of literature the paper, ink, vellum, papyrus, and increasingly electronic formats that it is inscribed on? Or is the stuff of literature the storehouse of tropes, techniques, and plots that authors draw from? And what kind of labor is the process of transforming that matter into literature? Earlier this year, Taylor Cowdery published an academic study on just this subject. The title of Taylor's book is Matter and Making in an Early English Poetry, Literary Production from Chaucer to Sydney from Cambridge University Press. Through case studies of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Gower's Confessio Amantis, Thomas Hockley's series, and Thomas Wyatt's poetry, Taylor captures a wide discourse around creativity and originality. Taylor is Associate Professor of English and Robert M. Lumiansky Fellow at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Taylor also serves as the Director of the Program in Medieval and Early Modern Studies. Taylor's writing has been published in ELH, Studies in the Age of Chaucer, and the Legacy of Boethius in Medieval England. Matter in Making in Early English Poetry is his first book.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Thanks very much, John. Appreciate it. It's nice to be here.
0: I'd like to start by asking you uh, to share how you came to study medieval literature. At what point in your reading life did you become fascinated with writers
1: like Chaucer and Gower? So it's a it's a funny question, because I think there were two stages sort of to that shift. When I was in college, I actually really wanted to study Victorian literature. And um, so I was a very reluctant medievalist. And I had to take a class that Susan Crane, who's still a, who's a wonderful friend, taught um called I think very unimaginatively called I shouldn't say that it's not very nice but uh British literature to 1500 It was great it was just a tremendous class and in the class I I thought of myself as being very into theory at the time and uh one of the things that Susan is so exceptional at as a scholar and a teacher is really to bring together kind of theoretical approaches um, with literature and a, and a sort of period of history that I did not think had anything to do with that. And she did this fabulous uh, uh, lecture on the bestiary, um, the Aberdeen bestiary in particular, what she was focusing on, if I recall. And we had all read T.H. White's Book of Beasts. And there was a particular story in the Book of Beasts about... Um, this the Panther, whose magical saving breath um, is in fact just like Christ's sort of uh, you know, this the sort of spirit of Sanctus that kind of goes around and heals everybody. So the Panther is a kind of figure for Christ. And there's this incredibly wacky allegorical um reading that the bestiary, that the the, the bestiary did of that figure. And I remember thinking at that moment, like, okay, you know, I could <laughs> I could spend some time sort of thinking about this going forward because it was so weird and compelling. And I didn't. I really didn't understand it, and I liked that. I liked the fact that I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, so then I went to grad school, and I wasn't sure what area I was going to focus on. And then I, I ended up getting interested in a lot of the poets that I wrote about um, in the book, in part because I got increasingly. Frustrated that I I couldn't find an account of what had happened between the fourteenth and sixteenth centuries that I, found, that I found very compelling, um, and there are wonderful, really extraordinary accounts of, of that transition. Not least, you know, James Simpson's really magisterial you know reform and, and cultural revolution. Um, but I was interested really specifically in poetry and poetics and how poets wrote and how they, their understanding of what they were doing when they wrote might have changed. And while, again, there was sort of, there was wonderful work here and there, it didn't seem to me that there was an organic or sort of systematic account um, of that transition. And so I thought I would like to understand it a little bit better. So it really, it's really 15th century poets that kind of where I ended up anchoring myself and then kind of moving outwards from there.
0: When you say you sort of began um, with this interest in theory, which theorists or which schools of theory were you where you grounded in when you began that journey?
1: Oh wow. This is like it's like a trip down memory lane here. <laughs> um I think. Uh dairy dog. I think I was oh, sort okay. of annoying, yeah. an annoying dairy dog guy when I was in when I was in college. Um you know I've been, there. I've been there. Yeah. But it was great. I mean, deconstruction is a really powerful for me. It was just a really and I, I think I always was interested in I was interested in religion and you know it's not a surprise right the deconstruction and theology there's a way in which they can sometimes be kissing cousins because you know it's about kind of a logocentrism it's about kind of thinking about you know the way that certain texts exercise an almost holy authority or seem to and um so there's a lot of kind of I, i think that was sort of where i was coming at it from and um, I remember actually that that best year episode in part because the best year is so it is a work of allegory, and so if you're thinking about someone like Paul de Man, right, it's it's sort of like a you can think it's a hop, skip, and a jump from there to to medieval exegesis or medieval allegories. So
0: yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I appreciated about your book. It very thoughtfully draws in theory at different at different uh, points. I appreciate Without, that. I think being like a theoretical reading of medieval text, you know, informed by rather than determined by theory, which is w- wonderful, I think. Um, I wanted to, to discuss two things that struck me uh, in your introduction. This is a study of, quote, literary production, end quote, as opposed to texts or authors. I like this phrase in your introduction, this book, quote, paints not a portrait, but a landscape, end quote. For you, what does painting a landscape of literary production entail?
1: So the metaphor, I think, is, you know, as I'm thinking about, as I'm sort of trying to introduce a book that is organized around single writers, right, and their bodies of work it's very tempting to think that I'm going to consider each of them as authors, which in some ways, of course, I'm doing, right? But the conceptual move uh, of moving from a kind of portrait, something that's close and defined has a kind of close focus around a particular individual to a landscape, the landscape will still contain that individual. And in fact, that individual might occupy a kind of central place in the landscape. But by taking the wider view you help to, if not, I would say, decenter the individual, then at the very least understand how the individual's relationships to other kinds of forces, whether these are social forces, whether there are other texts that the person might have read, um, whether they're intellectual influences or religious influences or whatever uh, else, how those things ultimately contributed as much, if not more, in certain respects, to the production of. literary text than that single person putting pen to paper dead so i guess you could approach it speaking of theoretical kind of ways of thinking about it so the literary production is really a kind of allusion to pierre machere um uh so a kind of structuralist french understanding of left-wing understanding of um how culture is produced it's um, it doesn't didn't get a lot of traction in um, medieval studies. There's a terrific Anne Middleton essay on Pierce Plowman where she she does a bunch of interesting things with uh, Masherai. But, um, but even to use a sort of more familiar figure, you might think about someone like, you know, Frederick Jameson um, in The Political Unconscious, right? Trying to understand how causality works, right? And how individual agents might produce a certain effect or a certain thing right but do that in the not even in the context but as the sort of as part of a network of other agents um and he of course wouldn't use the term network but as part of a kind of fabric of other agents who are also sort of um producing it as much if not more right than he even may realize he's producing it um you could do that in a, sort of a medieval vein, too, by talking about something like, you know, what the efficient cause, right, which is something that a lot of medieval commentaries on the authors do really persuasively, though. Um, they're often very specific in a fascinating way about, like, Okay, is the efficient cause of this text God? Because, you know, ultimately, (laughs) ultimately, God is sort of the efficient cause of everything, right? Um, Or can we talk about a sort of human author, right, um, as the efficient cause of, of, you know, this is where the pen is meeting the paper, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the only cause or certainly not the final cause, right, of the thing coming into being. Um, of course I'm drawing here on on the sort of magisterial work of of Alistair Menace, who as you probably noticed is a big influence throughout the whole book. Um, you know, a lot of what the book does just couldn't really have been written without without Alistair's work. So Second, you discussed these three very
0: different understandings of matter in relation to literary production. What was the ambivalence in that term?
1: Hmm. So it really could mean three things in European vernaculars and also in Latin, right? And one is really quite specific to a literary context. It's the source text, right? So whatever textual source you are using, that is your matter, right? In a specific way. Um, but it could also uh, comprise the plot, the themes, the even the storytelling tradition that that text was a part of, right? And that's actually a sense we have still today in the term, right? When we ask something you know, uh, it's a matter of concern, right? Which is to say, you're not talking about a text, you're talking about a topic of some, of some kind, right? And that is something medieval writers do when they invoke things like the matter of Britain, right? That really means we're going to think about all of the characters and plots and stories associated with Arthurian legend, right? Um, but then, of course, the final sense of the term is, again, one that we have today. It's physical stuff, right? The material substratum of the world, Um Um, in an Aristotelian sense of the of the term Um, and what's interesting about it is because it's got this polysemy built into it writers do uh, spend a lot of time playing around with and enjoying themselves sort of mixing and muddling the senses together so um, the one thing I'd stress about that is it's not unique just to English Um, and you know other vernaculars have the same kind of play around the term um, particularly in French um, and it's also not just a medieval innovation, right? So I, in the introduction to the book, I use the example of, of um, Polonius addressing Hamlet and asking him, you know, uh, what are you reading? And he says, what's the matter, my lord? And Hamlet says, what, what do you mean? And sort of makes a kind of agile joke at Polonius's expense, where he plays on precisely the different kinds of material, the kinds of things that matter could mean in the context. Um, so it's, a, it's an interestingly persistent uh, slippery term as well. Chaucer is the subject of your first chapter.
0: There you unwind the shifts in the ethics of tale telling over the course of the Canterbury Tales. The pilgrims consider and then discard the idea that a tale-telling is just a game, that no one's feelings should get hurt about different representations. Of course, feelings do get hurt, (laughs) um, but they also seem to reject the idea that tales are just instrumental justifications of an individual's ideology or identity or subject position. What are some of the key hinge moments in the understanding of words and deeds in the Canterbury Tales?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a tricky question because it's a capacious question in a lot of ways. But I, I guess I would say the obvious starting point for the chapter, right, is the you know central defense of um, his method that Chaucer produces at the end of the general prologue, right, where he cites this commonplace idea that the word must be cousin to the deed, um, and scholars have often latched onto that and used it, uh, as I sort of discussed to really really, to justify practically any claim about his sort of method and what he seems to mean by it. And so I guess, I'm, in a sense, I'm guilty of that too in some way. But um, I think that a couple of things um, I would sort of stress about his use of the term and phrase, which which recurs at different points. I mean, most famously, beyond the uh, general prologue, he'd point to something like The Mansible's Tale, which repeatedly plays upon the idea. And um, I think The Nun's Priest Tale, at the very end, the allusion to um, thinking about we you know fruit and chaff is a sort of not exactly the same but a kind of version of a similar sort of idea when you're thinking about referentiality and how closely poetry needs to be tied in some way to the things that it's talking about um but the the, the sort of central point I'd make about the way he uses it is um it's opportunistic so I mean it is a commonplace. Chaucer knows it's a commonplace. I think I counted eventually 26 or 27 instances across his works where he uses it. Um, um, and it can mean different sorts of things depending on the context, like any commonplace. Um, but I think he uses it in the general prologue and, and at other key moments in the tales to kind of give himself an opportunity to, to pose a question. And the question is, you know, what is poetry obliged to do with respect to the materials that it represents, right? Right. Does it have a debt, an obligation um, of some kind to what it represents? And I think initially, Chaucer begins uh, from the position that, no, it doesn't. And it doesn't because I don't want it (laughs) to have, because I don't want there to be rules, right? It's easier and in some ways more fun if you're a writer to think, I just write what I want. I can represent things however I want to represent it. And that kind of claim for carte blanche, um, I think, is what's motivating the initial invocation of the phrase at the end of the general prologue. And, And I mean, in saying that, I think I'm basically in line with a very, very long history of Chaucer critics who've come to basically that conclusion in one way or another, that Chaucer is in that moment giving himself a lot of latitude to write about whatever topics he wants to write about and to write about them however he wants to. Um, but I do think that as the sort of tales develop, you see him testing this idea out with a kind of simulated audience. This is a great idea that that Paul Strome uh, uh, sort of introduces in Social Chaucer and, and elsewhere, that, of course, if you want to think about audience in Chaucer, it's always interesting because you can think about actual audiences who's really reading the, the tales. But, of course, you can also think about the pilgrims who are clearly there as a kind of Uh, simulated or model audience for Chaucer to play around with um so as the pilgrims continue to 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 try out the limits of this like well can I really talk about anything you know and can I really talk about it however I want to um certain problems arise right and I mean I think we see this especially across fragment one which you know obviously deteriorates into a kind of you know (laughs) The Quaidan game sounds so civilized, but it's really just like an insult flinging contest. I mean, you know, it's people using literature not to sort of uh, do really any of the things that you would think literature might do, but rather just simply to use it as invective, right, to use it to to edge people out or get a social advantage over them. Um, And each of the fragments, I think, up to about fragment seven, in some way or another, witness if not quite the same level of of disintegration of the of the tale telling game, then then some pressure being put on it by people who are taking that latitude that Chaucer has claimed for himself, and maybe using it a little bit um, in a in a way that that, that abuses the the latitude. Um, and I mean, I think the the sort of key turning point for me actually in the whole of the the poem is really the partner's tale, um, which I take to be. And, I, under, and I, I recognize there are, of course, many, many ways to read this like really extraordinary and brilliant tale. For me, it is a tale that is fundamentally about the limits of the rhetorical uses to which a literary text can be put, which is to say it is kind of like a confidence game. It's, it's a tale teller who is trying to think, can I use the techniques and the materials available to me from certain kinds of literary um, traditions to just make a buck and really to do it in a totally unscrupulous way um, to manipulate my audience into getting them to pay me um, with really little concern for anything else um, and and it works right in a sense but it's also it's um, like very socially corrosive I think you would have to say the kind of final um, you know conclusion of the tale the kiss of peace between the host um, and the partner notwithstanding um it it feels as though something has sort of been ruptured at the end of that because there is a kind of recognition at least by the host who of course is also right the kind of person who's meant to be facilitating this tale telling game that something has been broken that there's been some sort of breach of compact in some way or another um so for me then the tales kind of return to the question with a renewed um I would say scrutiny or or interest in fragment seven um because I think there's been this sort of precedent of what happens if it's taken, if not too far, then right took to an extreme place. Um, and over the course of Fragment 7, I think we see, you know, many different versions of how closely literature might be expected to bind itself to its materials or whatever else. And I think, again, for me, the Nun's Priest tale, where I, I suspect <laughs> we'll want to spend a little time talking about anyway, is really kind of the culmination of that process of questioning and um, and uh, uh, I don't know that it comes to a particularly clear answer about it, but I do think it it doesn't affirm the idea, ultimately, at least not in my view, that um, the poet sort of has total latitude to write about whatever the poet wants to um, in exactly the way that the poet wants to do it, that they're actually, if not if there aren't rules that maybe there should be some rules about that.
0: Yeah. Let's dig into the nun's priest tale. Uh, It's my favorite. Um, It's a dazzling and fun tale, but, uh, but when I teach it in my Brit Lit seminar, um, my students are just baffled by how much I like it. You know, I'm saying, we're working up to the nun's priest tale. It's going to be the culmination of studying middle English and all of this. Um, You make a totally compelling argument for me that the tale should be read as an expression of theories of historiography, which I think is a very fresh and and new argument about the nun's priest tale. Um, How is history like a dream? And why is the revolt of 1381 such an important illusion in the nun's priest tale?
1: So I'll say from the outset, I I wish I could claim it to be as new (laughs) as I would like it to be. I mean, I'm working, of course, in that reading out of a really compelling set of previous um uh, uh works of criticism that identified not just the allusion to 1381 in that tale which scholars have known about for a very very long time going back at least as far as furnival um but um especially more recent new historicist criticism most you know notably and prominently of course stephen justice is writing in rebellion that um, have tried to sort of unpack the relationship between the nuns priest tale and 1381 as a historical event. what I do think I'm doing what I do think I'm doing that's new is I went back to the chronicle evidence which again is something that scholars and critics have worked through and talked about um, and and read it really closely and one of the things that I felt had not been observed quite as much was that it's not simply the you know, materials of the chronicles or, you know, what is reported that Chaucer may be thinking about or playing with in certain ways, the tropes, the literary forms that the chroniclers use to write about the events of 1381, they're identical in many cases to the tropes and forms that not just Chaucer, but also Gower used to write about that event. And that struck me as very interesting, um, not least because um we tend to think that history and literature as modes of writing or history writing i should say and literature have different uh procedures right or there are different expectations um and yet again and again you find multiple chroniclers describing the events of 1381 as a bad dream as a nightmare right um or uh using various kinds of beast allegory to figure what the experience of watching um, uh, the rising was like um so in a sense, then, uh, I think that means that that Chaucer and Gower are less original, right, than we we thought they might be, because there's a possibility that, like, the full-fledged dream allegory and beast allegory that plays out both in the Nun's Priest Tale and also in the Blox Galantis, right, that these are rather more a heightening of a sort of standard set of tropes of ways of talking about that event that were in circulation at the time than they were a sort of new or innovative refiguration of the event into some sort of um, more literary term um so in a nutshell really that's that's the kind of argument about 1381 in the nun's priest tale that these poets are taking the the sort of tropes and tools of history writing and sort of which you wouldn't think of in terms of being allegory or 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 a dream vision um and subjecting them to a slightly different way of, of thinking about them and in, in chaucer's case in particular um What I think he's doing there is he's suggesting in a sort of wry way that it might seem like when you read a silly beast fable, right, um, or you have a crazy dream vision, that you have experienced um, uh, a mode of literary writing that has absolutely nothing to do with historical reality. And the Nun's Priest Tale plays this up repeatedly, right? It makes allusions to other texts. It sort of, it sort of documents and stresses its fictionality in all sorts of ways, in a very demonstrative way. And yet, you know, at the very end of it, you have this illusion that kind of keys you to the sense that there is a closer relationship between literature and history or the real world, as you might call it, than we might think. Um, But it's not simply that Suddenly history is kind of barged through the door, or is coming into the tale. Rather, what Chaucer is sort of doing again, Riley is saying, Well, you think you've been reading about fantasy, but this is how the historians talk about this too. Like this has always been, in a sense, something that has a relationship to history, and not just in terms of its materials, but in terms of the forms that we use to think about the event as well. So, what to make of all of that, I think, is a different <laughs> different question in some ways, and I'm certainly not suggesting that Chaucer sees himself um, singularly, or even primarily as a historical poet. But I do think that, for me, the Nun's Priest tale provides a kind of culmination to the arguments that are the sort of process of thought that he's been exploring about the relationship of words and deeds, right, or the relationship of literary discourse to whatever it's representing. Um, you know, does it have an obligation to that thing? Does it need to represent it in a certain way. Perhaps the answer to those questions would be not really, but it does, it should perhaps not pretend, right? That it's simply fiction or fantasy, because nothing is really simply fiction or fantasy. Some even if you'd like it to be, there is ultimately going to be some relationship um, of that apparently fictive discourse to the broader historical and material context that is has produced a
0: yeah, with your permission, I'm going to incorporate this into my undergraduate class because I always come to that, this allusion to a historical figure. And and we've talked about the Peasants' Revolt in class. But, all, you know, all I can do is, oh, look at this interesting curiosity. But you've given this great, this great argument um, for how it's quite revealing and um, sort of opens up this whole way of thinking about the tale in a fresh way. So thank you for that. Um, as you point out, John Gower is known as this moralist, but you identify this particular expression of a kind of moral vision. In his poetry, what you term the crying voice, exerts a moral intervention that is typified by certain features. The voice comes from someone from a, a lower status social status to the, the person it's being addressed to. The voice seems to be spontaneous. The voice aligns with divine will, um, what are some examples of Gower's crying voice and what are two ways that the crying voice complicates Gower's moral project
1: that's a great question and very well formulated in relation to the to the chapter um so obviously you know voice is a category that scholarss of Gower, Gower have um, engaged with extensively um you know across time but um, uh, you know, it obviously the Vox Clamens gives Gower um, uh, the title for his longest Latin poem. Um, most of the examples of the what I'm calling the crying voice, though, um, uh, that I focus on are drawn from the Confessio Mantis. Um, and they're a little different from the broader uses of voice that Gower is known for. So... Specifically, the crying voice, as I understand it, is almost a thematic element or even a plot device that occurs in a lot of the stories, wherein a particular character, and it must be an individual, um, uh, cries out to some figure of authority, typically secular authority, um, for mercy or for remittance of the typical operation of justice in some way or another. Um, so in this sense, it's very close to ideas about supplication um, uh, and Misty uh, um, uh work, uh, I think, on, on sort of counsel and women in Gower is a kind of important um, uh, uh, intertext here, because I do think often the crying voice in Gower is quite gendered. Um, on the whole, it's mostly women who do it, um, who sort of engage in it. Um, but I think for the Confessio, the two key examples I would point to would be the story of Constantine, uh, which is a very important story for Gower, and that's in the second book of the Confessio, but he also returns to it in Impraised Peace, um, uh, his sort of last important Middle English um, political poem. Um, and then the sort of story of Procne and Philomela, um, which uh, I engage with at sort of greater length in the book. Um the Constantine story is interesting because he's, of course, an emperor, and it's, he's quite powerful. And he's he's consulted with a bunch of experts, right? And they've told him, the thing you really need to do is bathe in the blood of a lot of children, and that will cure your leprosy. Because in this particular tradition, this is what Constantine is suffering from. So, of course, he listens to the experts, right? Um, and once the women arrive, though, he finds himself listening to their wailing, to their crying, to their... Um, you know expressions of grief and you know in a proleptic way because they know what's coming and it's that expression of affect that actually changes his mind according to gower it's not anything that is said it's rather a feeling it's a movement of the heart right right um and uh and so then he kind of says you know the experts have told me to do this but I think it's a bunch of bunk instead we're gonna just not do that you can go home with your with your kids um and you know God in response to this gesture of course rewards Constantine cures him of his leprosy um so the story I think is illustrative of how the crying voice works for a couple of reasons um it can and often does contradict the views of experts um, so just because you get counsel from a bunch of you know people with PhDs or the equivalent uh, doesn't mean you should take them seriously. You should listen to something else. Um, it's about affect and feeling in some ways. It's really not about thinking or only about thinking. It can have a component of rational deliberation built into it or it can prompt that, but it's really about an appeal to the emotions. Um, and it's gender again, it often tends to be something that even if it's not being uttered explicitly by a woman, right there's a way in which the um, the the sort of association with a kind of feminine uh, affect right as opposed to a kind of masculine rationality to speak in very kind of heteronormative terms about this that seems to be something that Gower is exploring in some way or another throughout the home. And so for the same sort of reason you could think about the way that he, plays with and injects into the, his version of the Tereus um, Philomela and Procne story um, ideas about affect and about um, you know crying out in certain ways um, that exceed far go far beyond what is uh, present in Ovid um, and I'm pleased to report also beyond what is in the Ovid Moralize and other things like that it was one of the great regrets that I had when I was writing the book is I I didn't feel I had the time uh, to really go do the source work and I'm um, subsequently have been working on um uh, another kind of article about um uh, Gower's sources in that in that poem and in fact the the medieval avidian tradition also doesn't really stress the voice in the same way that the Gower does um um so again uh f- the crying voice is important um uh not just as a kind of um moment of a thing that signals a kind of supplication or a desire for mercy it actually changes the plot and allows for the resolution of certain kinds of conceptual problems or even moral problems right that gower is sort of grappling with so i've not really i think answered well your question about how it complicates his understanding of morality so let me quickly try to do that um the short answer would be so gower is typically understood right um to have a kind of uh, you could say um proscriptive and systematic understanding of right and wrong and morality and, and there's lots of reasons to think that you know uh not least that the confessio Amantis and also the mere de l'homme um, have an obvious relationship to manuel de depeche discourse to, to penitential manuals that systematically lay out um you know what is sinful and what is not different remedies in certain cases to those things um, That's what the Confessio does, too. So you could think, right, the whole point of his exercise of writing the Confessio Mantis is to sort of uh, give a literary bent to a manual like that. If you're trying, if you find yourself struggling with the sin of pride, just read book one of the Confessio Amantis and you will find, right... A list of ideas and stipulations that are moralizing the different stories so you learn about that sin different ways and if you just follow those instructions you'll arrive at a situation where you don't have to think too hard about whether you're prideful or not you'll know um, you'll have learned something about how to behave by learning the rules Um, the crying voice is important because it complicates the application of rules because there are going to be moments right in human life where you simply can't know whether you are you know what about a case that is a gray area what about something where there isn't an obvious precedent or rule for how you might act morally right um it's at those moments in the confessio at least according to my reading that he often draws upon and latches onto the crying voice as a kind of again mechanism for resolving difficulties in the plot right but also a mechanism for resolving certain moral or ethical quandaries um And it's very convenient, right? Because if you simply, it is a deus ex machina in some ways, right? You know, you don't have to worry about conceptually resolving tensions or contradictions and the way that the moral system of the confessio works. You can simply have an extraordinary moment of powerful affect that sort of resolves it all as if by its own power. Thomas Hockley is not a writer I'm very familiar
0: with. Um, One of his two autograph manuscripts to which scholars now give the title, the series, is described in your book very memorably. Um, Would you read from that section of the book?
1: Sure. Um, So this is from chapter three. Um, So J.A. Burrow once remarked that the series is, quote, a profoundly bookish work, end quote. And if anything, this is an understatement. Allusions to the books that comprise the matter of the series, Isidore of Seville's Synonyma, Tales from the Gesta Romanorum, and Henry Zuzo's Orologium Sapientiae, crowd the pages of Hocklave's collection, so much so that the reader could be forgiven for feeling, at times, that she's been presented with nothing so much as a versified book report. I
0: love that turn of phrase versified book report. I love um it, it, the weaving in of sources. Um I think that's a really important um aspect of craft. Um can you expand on that bookishness, Hockleaver's bookishness and what the experience
1: of reading uh the series is like? So I mean Hockleaver is I think just a wonderful and fascinating poet to read uh, for a whole bunch of reasons but for me the one i would sort of focus on especially with respect to his bookishness um is it, he's at once a writer who is obsessively interested in cataloging the uh books and sources and papers and everything that he's drawing his materials from he's extremely explicit about oh and i got this you know text from this other text and i mean of course there's the famous moment in the complaint where he says well i was translating this little bit from the synonyma and that was really kind of nice but then my buddy came by and he took it away and so i can't tell you anymore about what's (laughs) what's happening in that book um and you know again burrow I, i just Um, had quoted, of course, uh, observes, I think correctly, that 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 might just be nothing more than a pretext. But I think it does give a certain insight into his preoccupation with showing his readers all of his work, as it were, in the sense of as though he were a student. Here is exactly what I what I used to produce the thing that you have in your hands now. Um, And yet, at the same time, uh, there's a kind of countervailing force in Hockley, which is this sort of interest in verisimilitude or what you might even call realism that runs throughout a lot of the poetry so much so that even though you know you're being presented with texts that have been made out of other texts Hocklave seems to take a lot of trouble to suggest that he in fact is a real person or that there is a kind of autobiographical element to what he's writing and uh that it really did happen in the way that he's saying um this is James Simpson has a great um line about Hoglave where he says that um the series takes place in the space of real life as he puts it and he means that in a sort of quite specific and, and and targeted way in the sense that um the poem is trying very hard not to differentiate itself or to draw a line in the sand between itself and reality however you might sort of describe that um, it isn't presenting itself as an autonomous thing With its own inner logic and rules that can be considered apart from the world it's seeing itself as very much a part of the social reality that is that has produced it and hocklebe is clearly invested in in doing that in some way or another so much so that you sometimes find yourself believing everything he says which is a mistake it's not he isn't in fact telling you the truth about everything but he does you know the interest in autobiography goes i think hand in hand with what i'm describing this kind of um odd obsession with a bookish accounting of everything and also a kind of representation of the process of making a book that um uh attempts to represent it as a kind of real a, a real process
0: I, I guess i'm also
1: in, in having read the book and and
0: talking to you now i'm thinking of this as an interesting text to think through literary criticism through you know the ethics of citation and and Within your book and in this conversation, one of the things I admire is how generous you are with citation, with recognizing, if, you know, precursors, people who have shaped your thinking. Um, is Hucklave an, an interesting model for that kind of ethics or one that you would
1: you would resist? I don't know. Hocklave is a scholar I like it I mean it's funny I mean I'm I'm laughing in part because it again now I guess I'm going to do the same sort of thing again but there's a long-standing you know so especially in the 70s and 80s you know uh when Hocklave and and Lydgate really the whole of the 15th century we, we could say they didn't get exactly the kindest critical treatment um and in a lot of the works of critics who are maybe a little dismissive of the of of a writer like Hogglaive often the accusation comes up that oh he's really more a scholar than he is a poet right they'll see the same thing with with Lydgate the the argument will be well Lydgate's really more a historian than a poet right um so interestingly um I think that the the comparison is really apt and I think. Right, And Hocklave, I think, probably would have celebrated it in many ways, because I think Hocklave cared. I think that Hocklave's uh, series is a poem that very obviously tries to present itself as something that needs to be taken seriously as not just a work of fiction, but as something that is a rec- not just a record of something, but also something that might you know, actually have an effect in some way or another in the social world, that it might actually change something and not just an immediate way in an immediate way that it might change something um i think in order to to present itself that way though it has to kind of say well i'm not really just fiction because if i were fiction then you wouldn't have to take me seriously but you do have to take me seriously because i'm not just making it up over here i'm telling you the truth about something or i'm uh, making an entreaty about something that you know is authentic and and also you know accurate in some way or another I don't feel like I'm being quite as articulate about this as I should be. But um, the I do think that it's interesting to think about Hoclave as uh, as a kind of exemplary, um, careful and generous scholar. <laughs> it's, it's good. I, like I think
0: that. that's great. And I think that leads really well into the the next question I have, which is um, you connect Hoclave to this legal tradition of complaint Um, thinking about immediacy and immediacy how does hotclaves appropriation of legal discourse fit into your argument about making it matter
1: yeah so this is a great question so in the book the argument is is in a nutshell, really, that you know, Hockley, of course, as we know from Ethan Knapp's, you know, kind of fabulous work on foundational work, really, on, on the poet, um, you know, uh, he worked at a day job at the Privy Seal in London for you know almost forty years of his life. His uh, you know day to day work there um, uh, involved copying out countless legal documents, um, and in fact, he left a record of this, right. In the form of what's called his formulary this very very enormous collection um, of bureaucratic uh documents uh supposedly to be used as templates by future employees of the privy seal and i've done a little bit of work on the formulary in a different kind of context but I, I bring it into the book here too um to sort of make the the following claim which is that he's doing uh in the series not exactly a kind of poetry that is modeled explicitly or imitating exactly um uh the kinds of writing that he Uh, employed at the previous deal, but rather that is trying to appropriate uh, or maybe better yet to sort of create um, a new kind of literary writing that would mimic uh, the sort of force the sort of social force that legal writing and in some cases religious writing um, uh, would be understood to have had in Hoclave's time so put more simply if you are the king and you issue a writ saying Mr so-and-so appear at this place um you know uh on this date sign the king if you receive that, you know it's a little bit like getting a summons in our current day, you're probably going to go and not just because you're worried about well, what's going to happen with the you know, king's authority if I don't obey this particular order, because there's a way in which the document itself seems to have an almost kind of numinous authority um, it, because it mimics and, and imitates the voice of the king in a sort of interesting way. And, and here I'm drawing a little bit on Emily Steiner's uh, work in her first book on the kind of personification of power. Power that often takes place in medieval legal documents so um uh Hoclave doesn't think or expect that poetry is going to be able to harness power of that kind uh, in part because he doesn't have the kind of <laughs> he doesn't wield that kind of authority but I think he is interested in finding ways for poetry to uh mimic it in certain ways or to or to uh, acquire a kind of literary force um of you know if not coercion or compulsion then then of persuasion right um that would recall something like the genre of um you know the writ or the petition or the complaint right so this is sort of where the the legal writing side comes into the chapter and it's important for thinking about uh, kind of the central terms of the book matter and making again because making as i understand it is very much uh, a, a sort of literary practice that is trying to connect and show how a work of literature informs and shapes and is shaped by the social world that has produced it. Um, The whole reason I think that Haklaev is interested in kind of harnessing or mimicking the force of, of legal language is because he wants the series to actually do something for him. He doesn't just want it to be a text that sort of sits out there and is read. He wants it to persuade members of the public who think he's crazy that in fact he is not crazy um and he you know so he needs in a sense to um to 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 create a text that's going to be able to um exercise a kind of real social force if possible and not just sort of uh present itself as a representation so it's less that he is invested in complaint per se, it's less that there's a relationship of complaint or legal writing to ideas of matter and making per se that's of interest to me. It's more that it is a device, it's a sort of way that he engages in uh, a sort of mode of writing, this thing that I'm loosely calling making, right, um, that uh, that actually um, uh, doesn't want to conceal and in fact wants to play up. The relationship between the literary text and the, the social reality that received the social uh um uh, context that produced it and receives it
0: john lydgate's fall of princes is interested in the surplus of history all those interesting bits that get left out of books it's kind of like that line attributed to, to thelonious monk it's about the notes you don't play um why was Lydgate at such pains to point out the incompleteness of his poetry? Yeah, it's a great
1: question. Um I think in a nutshell, because he was trying to caution his readers against uh thinking too highly of themselves and their ability and their ability to control the course of events. So I think one way of answering the question actually is to to focus in in particular on the on the not just the Um, subject of of that chapter the specific text that that chapter thinks about which is the fall of princes but the person that the fall was written for and of course the gate is cagey in some ways about this he says in the prologue to that poem he's writing it for lots of different people he certainly doesn't intend it exclusively for this person but there is one very big name right at the center of that poem and that's humphrey duke of gloucester right sort of effectively is in control of england Um, during the 1430s, or much of the 1430s, when uh, he is, in fact, also serving as Lydgate's patron for that text. So if you were going to write a poem to the most powerful person in England, uh, you know, what would you want to tell them? (laughs) And the answer, uh, in in Lydgate's view, seems to be, well, you would want to tell them not to be reckless, not to be hasty, um, to be circumspect and exercise a certain kind of deliberative Um, logic when you're making decisions. And and again, this is something that many, many critics of of Lydgate have latched onto in the past. Again, not least, you know, I'm thinking a little bit of Paul Strom's kind of persuasive argument that the fall is about um, uh, sort of the Humphrey Duke of Gloucester learning how to, as as Strom puts it, fortune-proof himself, you know, you have to figure out how to um, look at the situation that surrounds you, look at the history that you're a part of, and try to avoid making foolish decisions but where i think the and this is where the chapter kind of breaks with that tradition of thinking where i think Lydgate is actually complicating that mode is a lot of the cases in the in the fall demonstrate that even if you do everything you could possibly do right um, to navigate history and fortune proof yourself you still just get foiled by it in the end i mean it's like this sort of extremely funny ironic i mean if you have a kind of you know perverse sense of irony um uh way that fortune is constantly or history is constantly undermining or undoing even the best prepared even the best um thought through of plans um so what this sort of part the portions and parts of history that aren't represented in the fall and that Lydgate repeatedly says oh I'm not going to talk about that that he calls the surplus right that's conceptually important I think for what he's doing because If there is a kind of vast surplus of history that you will never understand, that you can't grasp, that you certainly can't really write about, that all the books of the world, if you read them, you still wouldn't be able to grasp what it was, Um, that's a humbling thing to have to think about. And it might perhaps give you pause before you assumed kind of blithely that your process of decision-making, no matter how solid it might be, that that was going to ensure in any way that you were going to you know achieve all of the things that you might want to achieve and, and again it's worth thinking here of humphrey of gloucester humphrey was a very ambitious man and during the 1430s he was especially ambitious i mean he was really trying, i mean his ultimate downfall was as 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 um, people may know from listening on the to you know the, to the podcast maybe not it was i mean eleanor cobham his second wife was was ultimately convicted of of having consulted with kind of um local cunning people and other things like that to to figure out if they could have any information about when Henry VI would die Um, because of course if Henry VI died then that would give Humphrey an opening right to potentially finally achieve rule of the kingdom and it was upon you know her sort of trial and conviction for what was called treasonable necromancy that was the end of his political career really Um, so his ambition really did kind of undo him in the end uh uh and perhaps if you thought a little more about all the things you can't predict. I don't know. Maybe this is a slightly <laughs> blithe answer in its own way, but but I do think the answer to the question of why is it important not just conceptually and in terms of the poetics of what Lydgate's doing, but also in terms of the what the poem is is trying to convey to its reader, I think you do kind of have to think about Humphrey a little bit.
0: Reasonable necromancy. Um, Great <laughs> phrase. Awesome oh yeah. my, i want to see that whole sort of how that law is spelled out untreasonable
1: necromancy um you know i have never consulted the treasonable necromancy statute unfortunately <laughs> but now i feel i must you i must i that. must go look it up this is i'm taking this information predictably from the oxford DMB, which is of course just a wonderful resource um uh and so i i, I trust i trust that the author of that i think uh harris i think is his name um consulted the treasonable necromancy statute before putting that that phrase in there but that's awesome that's awesome
0: um and and this this um dovetails really well with um the next thing i wanted to talk to you about which is um, the looming presence of sovereigns or at least uh, you know, aristocratic patrons uh chaucer and richard ii uh, Lydgate and humphrey duke of gloucester how does patronage and royal authority figure into this larger argument about making a matter we've already begun to touch on this but it's a
1: great question and I mean I think the thing I would say is it's it's less about um it's less about the royal sovereignty per se although I think it's important to keep it in mind so I mean making as a practice right it's a courtly practice I don't think it necessarily has to be a courtly practice I mean I think there are lots of other modes of writing or, you know, thinking about literary production that you could characterize as making. I often found myself thinking as I wrote the book about, you know, if I was thinking about prose or about different social contexts, like is, is Marjorie Kemp, for example, a maker in certain ways? Yeah, I would say basically she is in certain in certain ways. she does many of the same kinds of things, but in a totally different social context. So it, sovereignty and royal power, that matters for a lot of these writers because that was the water they swam in. That was the the, the sort of milieu that they existed in, some more than others, right? So, I mean, Hock-Lave, and, <laughs> Hocklave in some ways was as aspirational. He was, like, always looking towards the court, but probably not really a part of it in the way that he wanted to be, at least. Um, but, you know, I mean, in Lydgate, for example... Um, you know, many people don't know this because of course he was a monk, but I mean, you know, he traveled in you know, the train of, 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 um, uh, the Duke of Bedford when, when, uh, when the Duke was initially going, I think it was, this was in 1426 or 27. That's how most scholars think he sort of came to, um, know what the dance of death was, um, because he talks about seeing it in Paris, right? So, um, the notion that he's just sort of in his monastic cell hanging out, um and writing all of this stuff for these distant patrons is is probably at least partly a fiction um he almost certainly too was spending time with Humphrey um at Humphrey's estate um at Humphrey's sort of small court um uh during the 1430s Uh, but anyway the the um uh the sort of patronage aspect um that I think is more essential for thinking about how making works because again if you're trying to think about where a text comes from and how a text might represent its relationship to its origins um it's really impossible to do that in a patronage system without talking about patronage right i mean it's just a huge amount of where texts come from is well you know well these days now you get a grant right <laughs> I mean, they didn't have grants in the 15th century right they had wealthy patrons wealthy benefactors right who were willing to finance and support the production of these things Um, so in a sense, that's part of why patronage recurs so often in the book is in trying to think seriously about, um, how poets understood their relation and the relationship of their, of their texts to where those texts came from. Inevitably, they found themselves thinking as one would about, well, who had paid for it and whether by writing this text, you could maybe get them to pay for another one. Um, uh, yeah, so that's what I would say, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great comparison. My mentor, Joe Black, uh, makes the observation that acknowledgments pages in academic books are as intricate and rhetorically sophisticated as any dedicatory epistle in, you know, Renaissance text or medieval text. Great comparison. That's exactly right, I think. Um, yeah. all of uh, Everything great in this book is due to someone else. All of the mistakes are my own. You know, these, like, this rhetorical performance, you know. Um when i was an undergraduate john skelton my my early modern uh professor uh professor of early modern literature that i had um brought john skelton in for pretty harsh treatment as (laughs) everything that was wrong with medieval poetry the the early moderns the, the renaissance poetry poets were like reinventing this language that skelton had more or less destroyed um, Skelton considered himself something of a Janus-like figure, looking forward and looking backward, resistant to educational reforms and displeased with the status quo. Um, wh- wh- what do you find interesting about Skelton's poetics, and why is the truthful
1: duplicity of things so important to him? Yeah, it's interesting to think about that Janus uh, comment in relation to the sort of interesting interest in, in duplicity that runs throughout Skelton. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, he's a transitional figure. I mean, I think it's fair to say that it's easy to, you know, I think lean on that as a hermeneutic or heuristic, which is uh, kind of not very useful, because I mean, we're all transitional figures (laughs) (laughs) to to designate someone in that way is is ultimately to perform a kind of ex post facto uh, work of of historiographic, um, putting people into places that they probably weren't really in at the time, but but I mean, I do think there, you know, there's a lot changing at the time that Skelton is writing. I mean, he is at once thinking through, you know, the sort of new learning uh, that is arriving in England, um, which he regards, I think, alternately with with derision and with uh, cautious interest. I mean, you know, I mean, he's sort of he's sort of kissing up to Erasmus in one moment, and in the next moment, sort of talking about how nobody knows how to do Latin anymore because they're all being taught you know in the worst possible way um by uh you know by these these idiots in London um so I mean I think part of the interest in kind of duplicity or doubleness in Skelton does come from a certain uh I think uh, maybe a kind of if only nascent sense on his part that he was um living in two worlds at the same time or one world that was kind of waxing and another world that was maybe waning sort of um in terms of the specific interest, though, in, in of, of sort of duplicity and what Skelton does with language and things like that, I mean, a lot of the chapter is focused on his use of an interest in kind of the rhetorical technique of copia, um, which uh, in, in medieval Latin handbooks, right, was was explicitly tied to notions of doubling. It was contuplicatio, right, as the sort of um, uh, rhetorical um, uh, figure um, of speech. Uh, that John of Garland, for instance, and others use to describe the practice of copia. So it's not explicitly or exclusively—I um, uh, shouldn't say explicitly—it's not exclusively um, an early modern practice. But of course, you know, it is Erasmus's copia that becomes this sort of enormous bestseller and ultimately kind of does a lot to shift the um, rhetorical fabric of. Um, training and of literary writing during the the first half of the of the 16th century and so so I I, I try to put Skelton in dialogue with this idea of of, of copious writing because I do think Skeltonics in a sense um, they're their own kind of copia um, I do think that understanding what Skelton is doing not as exactly that, but as very much in dialogue with a kind of copious style um, helps to make sense of what a lot of people have found as your your mentor <laughs> found um, and, and justified in some ways. It's not everyone's taste, but I mean, there is a way in which when you read Scotland, you feel like you're reading a, a, a kind of pile up of phrases upon phrases and sounds upon sounds. Um, so in a sense, it's like he's doing everything that Erasmus tells you not to do when you're um, when you're going to write in the copious style. Um, But I think his conceptual point, his reason for doing that, at least according to my argument, um, is that Skelton is very skeptical of the idea that there's ever going to be one representation, one story about anything, right? And I think partly this is because there's a kind of interest and sensitivity to change and the way that ongoing processes of change shape human life. Um, This, I think, does account maybe for Skelton's fascination with certain kinds of bodies. He seems to be very interested always in bodies doing stuff. In um, physical movement and a kind of um, like almost sort of uh, Rabelazian, uh, uh you know, uh, carnality, right, that runs through a lot of the work. I and mean, thinking here, especially of something like Eleanor Rahming, um, which is just grotesque, right, and its depiction of physicality, but also is insistent and almost exuberant in its its depiction of that. So part of the the sort of resistance to there being one story or one representation is, you know that isn't really true to life right if you're just representing one thing one way well then what do you do with change what do you do with the process of change that that you know where something becomes something else um but i think the other reason he's sort of skeptical of it and this has more to do with both intellectual and i think also sort of his political views or his kind of complex attitude towards the core right is um, if you are insisting that there is only one way of representing things or one way of, of, of doing things, you're actually not really practicing a very realistic or very similar or lively style at all. And of course, this is one of the old chestnuts of a lot of early 16th century theories. you know, you not only want to have an imitation of something that is compelling and seems real it also should be like a picture right and her Horace's sort of phrase or it should have a quality of anargea right a quality of lifeliness that actually makes you think you're actually experiencing something in the flesh and something Erasmus turns to over and over again um for Skelton I think um in order for that to be true you cannot just have one style one way of writing one kind of consistent um register you can't have decorum in the way that a lot of early modern writers would insist on decorum. Right. Um, so for skeleton, that's a kind of sterile style that ought to be rejected in favor of something that sure might be uglier or more grotesque or a little more wild. Right. But it has an actual quality of life to it. So who knows whether I'm right about any any of that, but that is sort of my understanding of, um, part of why he adopts the sort of, unexpected and, and often genuinely bewildering style that he does adopt
0: yeah yeah um and and before we started recording i i had mentioned how much i admired your style and listening to you talk about skeleton i think one of the things i admire especially is like you're inspiring me to go back to those primary sources with with fresh eyes give it another shot you're finding things i think that i'm going to 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 um, th- that draw me back into the the literature, which is a great great thing, I think. Um, t- Thomas Wyatt was the subject was subject to the whims of a very fraught, at times, violent political environment. Um, you argue that the fifteen thirty four Treasons Act and the wider literary historical conditions of the Tudor court shaped how he thought about style, in particular, manner as displacing the matter of a poem. Um, how do you how do we see that operating in his poetry yeah
1: well i, I think in some ways it's, this is a development of again an argument that scholars have, have have been you know uh conducting for some time about wyatt um uh and and i'm drawing very heavily here on on the work of people like jason powell done so much fabulous work on on wyatt's life and, and has done such a good job of editing wyatt's prose works and I think we're all really excited about the poetry coming out. I'm sure that volume will appear will appear soon. Um, uh, but for me, the 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 reason that manner matters—gosh, that's a terrible, very confusing way of putting it. But the reason manner is important, um, or rather, that there's a kind of opposition between manner and matter. Right? It has to do with style and Wyatt, and um, particularly with the way that Wyatt's poems seem to. For, for lack of a better way of putting it um present themselves as deliberately clunky or deliberately uh cliched in some way or another i mean why it uses tons of cliches all over the place and does them it does it very very self-consciously um you know most famously things like in the satires to brian um you can really see um him playing with proverbialisms and, and this is a point that diane ross has made right Um, what's interesting about the way that he plays with it in my reading is that um he's doing that to kind of show the reader to sort of cue to signal to the reader that you should not read what is being said you shouldn't take it at face value because it's ultimately meaningless at face value um what actually carries and conveys meaning what actually allows for communication to take place um, between the poem and the reader, right? Is It's affect, it's style, it's manner, the sort of way that it, con- it combines different conventional materials that Wyatt often has sourced, I think, very deliberately and very self-consciously from the most hackneyed and, uh, you know, cliched of sources. So in my view, you know, this begs the question, well, why would you write that way? I mean, um, you know, why do that? Well, I think that when you think about the social context in which he lived, right, and especially his job, his his job as an ambassador and career, um, sort of working through uh, various modes of indirect communication, um, and his experience of life at court, I think it becomes easier to understand why Wyatt would feel quite reticent about the prospect of speaking directly or saying flatly anything. Really, um, uh, it's a way that it's a way of communication that that, that leaves you quite vulnerable if somebody is trying to take advantage of you or try to um find a way to you know um get you in trouble and of course this is something that did happen to wyatt right i mean as 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 we know you know 1537 uh you know he has this dinner party and apparently says some nasty things about carts and asses and the king and um he has different story for what he said exactly he repeats it precisely in his sort of defense that he pens from the tower but um uh, the point is that you know Wyatt's moment uh, at that dinner party of saying something directly and and, and literally that perhaps he ought not have said um, really came back to haunt him, um, and he was prosecuted right under that act. He was ultimately kind of let off the hook, but uh, it, you know the idea that just saying what you thought. Because you had a kind of freedom of speech, this is a totally foreign concept. This is not a thing that is true in 16th century. It's not a thing that's true now, but it was definitely not a thing that was true in 16th century England. Um, so I guess that's an elliptical way of coming at how the the Treasons Act would have would have shaped his poetry. And but I do think that in a, in a nutshell, um, Wyatt's turn away from a use uh, from the use of matter in a straightforward way while he's writing towards kind of style and manner, right? um as where the real heart of the poetry is i think has to do in part with him trying to find a way of writing that is if not safer a mode of communication that's safer than one that felt more honest or more kind of authentic than you know than the alternative
0: this book was remade from your dissertation i believe oh is that correct this was your dissertation yeah um can you talk to us about the process of revising a dissertation into a book? Many of the listeners um, are dissertating right now or they're early career scholars. They're um, considering how to turn it into like the commodity object of a book. Um, what, what was the process like? What advice would you give to them? Yeah. It was painful.
1: Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't do it again. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully I don't have to do it again. Um. Uh. You know, I think the best advice, the best advice I would give, I certainly would give it to myself. So, I mean, I have a way of, uh, I would not say that I'm always the most wise or circumspect in terms of how I plan out my course of work on things. I tend to, tend to do things. I tend to be very stubborn about doing things until I think they're done, which is not always the most practical or even the smartest way of approaching work. Because, you know, sometimes you, if you just sort of run out a wall until the wall goes down, you know it will eventually knock the wall down but you know you may find yourself with a few more bruises than you otherwise would have had um so in a nutshell what i would say is um it's okay first of all just discard parts of the dissertation i think i felt compelled to retain certain things in retrospect i don't think i would have i wouldn't have tossed out more than i did i actually ended up losing about um I mean most of the dissertation so of the of the chapters in the book really only the Lydgate and the Skelton chapters were um in a, in a meaningful way a part of the dissertation um though they were also quite expanded and sort of edited into something you know that was both at once bigger in terms of longer um but also sort of new in certain parts of the argument Hockley of chapter, I kind of took ideas and bits and pieces. And I, I published an article that has some relationship to the chapter um, in spirit, but um I actually spent quite a lot of time trying to adapt that article for the book and realizing that I was a very foolish thing, <laughs> realizing it was not going to work because uh my thinking had changed. Um and so that would be another thing that I would say is if you find yourself um, feeling like you're tied to like the like the dissertation has become a kind of ball and chain. It's okay to just sever the chain. <laughs> you can just you actually can just take some of the ideas of the research and write something fresh with it, and that actually might be more enjoyable and also more um, kind of time uh, effective than trying to kind of shoehorn what you once did, especially if you wrote it quite a bit of time ago, into something new. Um, yeah.
0: Um, I admire your style quite a bit. Um I you, yeah, yeah, you read a, a passage from the book. I love the turns of phrase. um I love the generosity and um thoughtfulness with which you cite. Um, what are your techniques for for crafting academic prose? Are there writers you admire? Are you a part of a reading group? Um that sort of thing.
1: yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know. I would say, I would say, I would say it's usually born of a lot of labor. I mean, I, you know, good writing, as we all know, it just takes a long time. And I'm so I'm so pleased that you enjoyed the style of the book. I have, you know, um scholars and critics who have long admired I think well-written academic prose is just a delight to read it's something that's been very important to me for a long time to try to do myself I don't often think I succeed um I mean I was very lucky to to work uh as a as a graduate student with um with Stephen Greenblatt and with James Simpson um who are such different thinkers in many ways but also who I think are equally if differently talented um stylists and so i think part of what i was the beneficiary of honestly was a certain kind of uh uh um what's the right way to put it benevolent pressure <laughs> to, to write well because of course they did um and um i mean i still think that passages in, you know i, I still often remember and recall to myself and chuckle at passages in renaissance self-fashioning or right? james's you know wonderful uh Reform and cultural revolution book um where, you know, a certain way of saying something just kind of got me to see an issue very differently. Um, In terms of like very specific uh, um, um, techniques or principles, this isn't, of course, to everybody's taste, but for me at least, um, I think colloquial writing is good writing. um, And I also think that writing that prioritizes clarity as much as possible is good writing. Um, So I tend to, where I can avoid it, avoid jargon there are certain cases where it is unavoidable right we know this because you're talking about you know manuscript collation you have to use the term collation there's just not really a way around that right um but in many cases i think jargon becomes more um more of a hindrance than it is a help even if it does provide a shortcut for a specialist audience um but in the you know interests of colloquialism and clarity I, i like to use contractions that's something i've sometimes butted up against with editors um um i also like sometimes to um for lack of a better word say things twice <laughs> um so if you have a difficult thought something that's very hard to 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 wrap around um something i often will do is i'll try to write out in as precise you know and, and elegant if i can manage it but certainly as precise a way as i can um what that thought is and then try to follow it with a sentence that says in effect the same thing but in a colloquial and short way um and uh i think this is a trick i probably learned from james but it, it is a way of you know there's a kind of i think feeling amongst some academic writers that if you're not always saying things in as precise a way as possible that you are letting your readers down and i think there's a lot of truth to that but i think you can kind of have it both ways you don't have to always be hyper precise you can be both colloquial and precise um in apposition and that itself has a certain value because sometimes precision is actually not clear and then if it's not clear well then you haven't really been very precise um so i, I think it's a difficult kind of balancing act um as the only other thing i'd say is i, I think i think a lot about pacing and structure i think that I used to be a musician. I still play um, music a lot for, for fun and for pleasure, but I, I used to be a kind of more serious musician. And so I think thinking about rhythm and thinking about how your paragraphs kind of um, fit together and whether you feel that there's a kind of, um, whether, whether you're happy with the rhythm, especially when you read it out loud um, with what you've written, that can be a good cue, at least for me and my style, um, uh, that I need to revise something if I feel like I'm tripping over myself somehow. Um, or I just don't like the way that the sentences sound together.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I like all of that advice. The saying it twice thing, um, or, or re- repeating it in different registers. Yeah, how you know, that could could also manage the affective experience of the reader. You know, those sort of play excellent um now that this book is out in the world uh what are you turning your attention to is there uh, a next project uh class that you're designing a non-academic hobby that you're turning your attention to anything
1: Oh, a non-academic hobby. what are what are those what are those uh, um uh well i'm actually i'm in the middle of doing a bunch of different things which is sort of exciting so um, i'm i'm doing an editing project with some friends we're trying to edit Lydgate's shorter poems again do a new critical edition that's a kind of um you know nights and weekends thing um my main kind of focus at the moment um you know beyond of course you know teaching and doing everything else that we do um is a, a project about um what i would sort of call the middle classes of medieval england and it was actually born directly out of the project that i i just finished um i f- i feel like i tried to write a book that was going to think about court poetry and not not do many of the things that sometimes work in court poetry can do that i can find frustrating which is to say um you know valorize individuals or sort of focus on certain kinds of writers as though um you know they were with with sort of a rhetoric of genius or particularity or exceptionality right um but i did ultimately find myself thinking well you know uh you you did spend a lot of time writing about a lot of wealthy (laughs) wealthy people who are writing in a very um particular So part of what I found interesting about this new project, have been enjoying about it, is um, uh, by sort of turning to audiences and groups beyond the court, right? Um, especially in emergent strata of English society, especially in the fifteenth century, which is where this project is really the heart of it is. Although I'll probably reach into the sixteenth and a little bit maybe to the end of the fourteenth. Um, I think we can learn not just about sort of literary history as a practice and what it means for literary history to be. You know, we could say more inclusive, but also just what it means for literary history to to sort of take the course that it typically does. Um, but I think also learn a lot about what um, you know what the contributions of individuals and groups who are typically excluded from literary history may have actually made to it. So, so part of the project is studying books and especially household books, and, but other things too associated with you know guilds, people and crafts people. Um, and to a slightly lesser extent merchants in medieval London. Um, And so there's a kind of book historical side to it. That's what I've been spending most of this past summer doing. But then there's also a kind of literary critical side, which is thinking about representations of working people of of all kinds, really, um, in uh, canonical literature. And I'm using working people in a kind of broad sense here because, of course, you know, if you're a member of the gentry, at least in theory, you're not supposed to work. And in the nobility, you don't have to work, right? So working people really could be conceivably anybody from a even relatively successful merchant, right, down to a peasant, really. Anybody who doesn't have the capital and landed estate required to simply not work. Um, It's amazing when you think about it, how many of the canonical works of literature that we teach are produced by classes who in fact are, are in that sort of landed um, state in some way or another. So I just got sort of interested in, um, in in what other kind of groups um, would have thought about literature and what literature was to them
0: that's great we'll we'll keep our eyes out for both of those projects can can I back up a little bit and ask you you said you're a musician uh, what instrument do you play and what kind of music do you typically oh, that's play? a great
1: yeah well now, now you'll really never be able to shut me up unfortunately that's <laughs> <laughs> what I really thank like you, to talk you. about uh, I was a I was a classical cellist so I, I spent a lot of time growing up playing um chamber music and doing solo things and I I, I spent a just a brief minute in a conservatory, and then realized that was not for, not for me. Um, I wasn't really good enough at it. I was I was I, I think I had a good head for it, but I the athleticism of it was never something I was as good at. Um, um, so I play sometimes cello um, with friends. I'll play classical music and chamber music with friends if I can. But what I mostly spend my time doing, um, and I everybody will have to forgive, <laughs> forgive me for it, but I really like to play. I like to play acoustic guitar um so um my my partner is also a really he's a really talented guitarist and so i can't i can't match his skills and his his uh his abilities um with it but um it's it's a nice it's a wonderful instrument because it can be um a joy just to play it by yourself you can as a cellist i you know you often felt or at least i always often felt a little bit Lonely in some ways, because there is solo music for cello, but it's really an instrument meant to be played with others. Um, And unless you have a ready uh, pianist or other friends who are right around the corner, um, it can be hard to arrange those. One of the things that's very nice about playing guitar is that you can just pick it up and play something and then put it back down. And um, you don't have to think about all of that. There doesn't have to be a kind of logistical to do um, about playing it with people it's a pleasure in itself that's awesome
0: uh thank you so much for sharing this book with us and for this conversation taylor
1: oh thanks so much john i appreciate it this has been a really nice conversation